Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 137. The Weekly Word Podcast is an ultra-endurance resource. In the Weekly Word Podcast, I discuss what we can do in order to achieve our endurance outcomes. Most of this discussion is applicable to most any endurance athlete. I have found that the topics my athletes ask about, want me to discuss or explain in more depth, are what most endurance athletes are interested in as well. We talk training, nutrition, recovery, sleep, strength, strategy, balancing our daily life, mindset, and the curiosity with what the ultra-endurance lifestyle unleashes within us and why it resonates so deeply with so many of us. I try to share and educate on how to reach an outstanding fitness level, maintaining a strong mind and the mental resilience that comes with it as well as overall health in the form of nutrition, sleep, and recovery. I also try to deliver advice, observations, and tips for you, the listener. So let's start training versus just exercising. Motivation has come up a lot lately, and I understand it. We feel trapped in a time loop. We might, just like in a movie, feel like there are no consequences for our daily repetitive actions. We can just sit on the couch, relax, take some time off, There's no races coming. There's no events coming. Why not live Groundhog Day? And maybe we're not quite Bill Murray eating and drinking with reckless behavior, even robbery or one-night stands. But we might be similarly unmotivated for future outcomes due to cancellations and no real solutions in the short-term future. Health, economy, etc., all of that is creating anxiety. It's out of our control and leaves us less motivated. We might even feel depressed and desperate, or some of us might be. Well, just like in Groundhog Day, it is not until the character learns to use his knowledge of the day's events to better himself and the lives of others that he not only finds fulfillment in the repetition, myth of Sisyphus, remember, but also falls in love and eventually breaks the time loop. So here we are, we're pretty much in a repetitive daily action, right? The days are melting into each other. They feel the same. Kids are at home all the time. We're at home all the time. We live in a small space, shelter in place, space being overall environment, our house, maybe an extended um, yard and stuff from that if that's if you're lucky enough to have that. And if you're even more fortunate to have that, that you might have trails or hiking opportunities close by, sort of like me. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't feel like Groundhog Day, like we're reliving this day after day after day. And quite honestly, I've woken up with this sort of, I don't know what day it is, or with this repetitive notion of, oh, our alarm clock goes off. Well, not for me, but I wake up, walk downstairs, you know, start my coffee and look around and go, wait, how is this any different than the day before, the day before, the day before, etc.? We are athletes, and we want to be constantly thinking how to use this time and how we can find fulfillment in the repetition. Until we learn to use this time, this stoppage time, as I call it, to better ourselves and the lives of those around us, we might remain stuck in feeling powerless and unmotivated. One of the main things when we're anxious, don't feel in control, One of the main things psychologists say to do is help others, give to others, provide a service, be of service. 
use this time in order to improve the lives around us, of those around us. In the words of Viktor Frankl, whose book I constantly am opening and just glancing at a few pages, his Man's Search for Meaning, if you can't change or control the external circumstances, and I'm paraphrasing here, your outer world, change your internal world, change yourself, right? So by giving from ourselves and giving to others, we're able to control somewhat of the circumstances around us. How do we maintain control? By controlling how much we give to others around us. These are challenging times, but we choose and we are in control of how we want to kick out of this. There's so much we can do. But that still hasn't answered how we can stay motivated. Let's say you are doing the, what we just talked about, how we're learning to use this time, using the stoppage time to better ourselves and the lives of those around us. But we still might remain feeling stuck and unmotivated towards our events. I want to bring up something that I brought up in podcasts many times before, way back. Don't worry about motivation. Motivation is short term. It doesn't settle us. It's fickle. It comes and goes. It is unreliable. And when you're counting on motivation to get your goals accomplished, you will likely fall short. Motivation isn't what gets you to your goals. Willpower is. Discipline is. Consistency is. Clarity, purpose, intention is. Don't expect to be motivated every day to get out there and make things happen. You won't. Don't count on motivation. Count on that consistent daily behavior, otherwise known as discipline. By having consistent daily behavior, you don't need motivation. You wake up and you get it done because you said you would. You know what you have to do. Make yourself do it. You make yourself do something via discipline. Everyone wants some sort of magic pill, some sort of life hack that eliminates the need to go do the work. But that doesn't exist. You have to do the work. You gotta do the work. That's another podcast that I talked about. You gotta do the work. You have to go out there and continue progressing forward in any minuscule micro step way. How am I better today than yesterday? That's work. There's no shortcut for that. How will I be better tomorrow than today? That's work. That's prep. That's intention. That's clarity. That's focus. That's you thinking today, how I can set myself up for the best possible tomorrow. Yes, motivation is fickle. We can find the discipline. We can act out on daily habits, daily repetition, the discipline of what we stand for, our values and our character of knowing we don't need motivation. We execute, we accomplish. It's that simple. And this becomes challenging because as I said on a consulting call today, and I spoke with Emily also a little bit about it, we're stuck out of our routine. We're suddenly working from home. We don't have a commute. We don't have an office, the old routine. We're not stopping at a coffee shop along the way and going through the motions that we usually go through. We don't have a gym. The gym might be closed. We might not be able to go for our morning run or go to the gym before we go to work or get to the pool before we go to the work. 
or we'll have our set routine schedule of the week. We know that we swim on Tuesdays or we run on, uh, have a group trail run on Fridays. All that's been changed. We might have to work out later in the day because homeschooling and work and different requirements at home and so forth and space and time and availability and where our home gym is and the kids and it's all upside down. So we create a new routine because we are now working from home and have changed our routine. We have an opportunity not only to identify what may have gotten too familiar to us, but also that we might have been going through the motions. Remember, exercising is when you just are going through the motions versus clarity, intention, and purpose. And so waking up, going to the gym, going through certain actions, behaviors, repetition, and then going from there directly to work and repeating and rinsing, that's not clarity, intention, purpose. So maybe, I'm not saying everybody, but maybe this is an opportunity to create a new routine, a more thoughtful routine, or even in the concepts of exercise physiology by mixing things up, applying different times of day, different routines, different muscle groups. Maybe you do strength in the morning. Maybe you run in the afternoon, something that you haven't done before, but you're getting a different understanding of it. You might not keep that routine, but at least you're learning, you're growing. And again, it allows you to walk out of this time, the walk out of this time, come out of this time, come out of this crisis, again, with more knowledge and understanding and awareness to be a better athlete. And maybe you do like what you, your new routine offers and it creates a new normal. And with that, with that knowledge and with that understanding and with that possible new routine, we just converted this crisis into something for us versus it happening to us. Changing our routine allows us to see blind spots. Maybe there are things that were too typical for us. Maybe it's better to do stretch cords on a Thursday morning instead of just going to swim practice. I don't know. We don't know. But until we find out, until we do it, until we see the benefits or the downsides of it or how our body responds to it, we don't know. We have the opportunity again to learn. And while it might not always be in a training perspective that we're learning, but observing and applying in many different ways, even with that routine, it's better for me to train in the afternoon than in the morning. Well, you know, the training is the same, but what has changed the time of day or how we work on with breakfast and training at mid-morning right? And saying, okay, usually I don't have breakfast in my stomach. How did my body respond over a couple of weeks of doing that? Oh, it actually responded the same. And I had a little bit of breakfast, but by having a little bit of breakfast before my workout later in the day, I found myself not so depleted, not trying to snack, not craving junk food, not craving sugar. Or later in the day, I had an opportunity to train better I noticed that I trained better because I had a solid breakfast. I don't know. Again, a zillion different situations, but all learning opportunities and part of the athlete's mindset, right? It's not the athlete's mindset. The one that you are fully capable of and have within you isn't just about training. It's how you approach things, how you observe things, how you are learning, how in the future you will be able to execute training better, be a better athlete, be a smarter athlete, have a better mindset, have a better approach, know more about yourself. That is all the athlete's mindset. 
So it's not just the workout or intention and clarity and purpose around what you're doing in that workout or in that training session. It's about bettering yourself, understanding more about yourself. And of course, we're so familiar that coming out of training, we're centered, patient, we have an emotional reserve, we have energy to give. It's restorative. And so then we can go about our day. And currently, maybe we're stuck doing all that later in the day. (laughs) And so we're impatient and we're low energy and we're not centered during the day. Again, things we're learning and can observe and grow from. And again, when we kick out of this, more in our toolbox, more for us to contemplate and add to our full-on athlete self. And that's part of this beauty, right? We can create a new, better version of ourselves kicking out of this, our own new normal. And again, so that this crisis did something for us, not to us. I received a text message the other day from one of my athletes and his event too was canceled. In this case, canceled, not even postponed. He was sort of, um, I wouldn't say off the rails, but he was just uncertain. He wasn't sure what he should do next. And he asked me, and I've gotten this email from, or input, email, text, whatever, from a variety of people saying, well, does that mean we back off the training now so that we can peak in the future? And I said, well, wait a moment, what does that mean? How do you envision that happening? Well, and of course, I know what it means, but I wanted then to describe it. It was a question of almost like backing off and sort of hitting cruise control. It goes against everything that I believe in, again, as progressing as an athlete. How am I better today? than I was yesterday. How will I be better tomorrow than I am today? Progression, right? Moving forward, even if it's ever such small steps. And I wrote him back. I said, do we want to hold off on being that fit, pausing or slowing for a postponed event? We want to train beyond that. We want to get to that period of time where you would have peaked so fit, so strong that that's the new normal. Create a new planet platform and launch further from there, stronger, better, smarter from there. We want to grow to that point, take that fitness that we built, that strength, that learning about what we're doing and who we are as an athlete. And then having accumulated that, continue to grow, continue to build as an athlete. There is, just because the event has been canceled or postponed, it's still an opportunity to continue to grow. And I would wonder why we wouldn't want to continue on that track either way. Now, I understand, again, we've talked about this a fair amount over the last few weeks. Events are important to us. They validate our training. They feel good. There's a, a huge high in the experience and the sense of accomplishment and the camaraderie and overall, everything just clicks, right? It's oftentimes a day of a flow state, mainly also because of emotions. You might not be feeling your best or you might not have your best performance, but overall, all the emotions put together and the experience and the effort and the culmination of a variety of sacrifices and work that you've put in, I get it. But like we said, that's just a exit ramp off the highway of where we're going. Once we get off that exit ramp, we have the experience, we have the event, we have the race, we have the adventure, 
And then we get right back on the highway and continue moving forward, growing. There is no real destination with this highway. It's, as I was saying in the books that I'm reading, it's an infinite game. Our health and fitness is an infinite game. There is no finish line. It's not like we'll ever get to a point where we go, all right, I'm healthy and uh, fit enough. Now I'm done. Are we going to stop? Are we going to go backwards? Do we want to keep crossing the same finish line? Do we want to go back a mile from the finish line and go back and uh, and try to recapture that fitness again? No, we, we it's an infinite game. There is no finish line. Our health and our fitness and our endurance and our better, stronger, smarter, our ability to withstand the rigors of daily life through endurance, through our best athletic version of ourselves. It's continuous. And so, of course, events are on that path. And they're a great check-in. I am not a proponent of not doing any events. I ask all my athletes for events. And I love events myself, like my memories now of the last event I did at Artillo and some of you might have seen on Instagram. Like, it's great. I miss the camaraderie. I miss the friendships. I miss the training excitement that while you're training, you're thinking of how you're going to feel and envisioning how you're going to be on event day. Absolutely. It's all part of the overall package. But I also know deep down inside, it's not the only reason I do this. If there were no event, I would love to trail run, love to run, love to swim, love to open water swim, love to bike ride, love to gravel bike ride, put it all together. Those are all events that I love. And in order to do them so that I love them, so that I'm having the most um, beautiful current experience, I need to be fit. I need to be fit to do that. If I'm unfit doing it, it's not as enjoyable. And so I just took it down a notch. Why would I want to do that? And that's what I wish and hope for, for all of you. I want you all to be fit enough to enjoy and have the most beautiful current athlete experience on a daily basis that you don't even think of it as training, that you don't even think of it as a workout work, right? but that it's just something you enjoy, you exhale, you breathe. And like we said, you're centered coming out of it. You have energy reserves, you're patient, you have emotional energy and reserves. It's a beautiful feeling. And of course, there's dopamine and all the different results from it physically within us too. But overall, that's the path that we're on. And that's how we want to continue to build our fitness. We're not peaking for anything. But Chris, you have athletes who have Ironman Kona or have an an A race. Of course, of course. And we will do our best to have the best possible outcome on that day. And we're on a path towards that day. And we're training where we are in order to get there, right? For sure. But those are chapters in the book. They're not the entire book. And the cover of the book doesn't say A race chapter B or chapter, excuse me, chapter two. Book says life. And those are check-ins. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Those are ways to see we worked hard and we achieved the outcome we want to achieve. But rarely do I have athletes that just say, all right, once I make it to Kona, I'm done with coaching or I'm done with training or I'm done with fitness or I'm done with this. Or once I've won my age group there, or once I've achieved this, or once I've, you know, done that hundred miler or what? No, because <laughs> everybody along that journey recognizes the joy and the fun and the fitness and the health and the overall sensations that their body is going through and how they're feeling emotionally, physically, spiritually along the way. Is that something they want to give up? It's a story I keep bringing up about how I was interviewed by NBC Sports many years ago in Kona. And they asked me, you know, what is it about this race? Why is everybody so amped and geared up? And the energy here is so different. And I said back then, those that have made it here are so excited and are so high to finally take part in what they've been working a long time for. And those that have been here before want that feeling again. So it's never ending. You want to feel that high of a great race and a successful race in Kona again. That's an incredible release and high. And those that are there experiencing it the first time, they're here with that energy and about to feel that high. You are never done. It always sits with you. But for our highway, for our book that we're talking about, or there is no destination because you're in that endless loop. You're in that circle because it feels good. It's healthy. It's the right way to go. Now, of course, you can overtrain. Now, of course, you can overdo it. Now, of course, you can take it too seriously. Of course, you can burn bridges. But if you're along these lines of doing it because you love it, not for the validation or for the result or for the uh, the finite game aspect of it that want, there's winning and losing and that there's a finish line and you're first, I think you're pretty safe and healthy with regards to being healthy, fit, strong, balanced, and so forth. I've had a few email questions that have come lately and I want to be sure to answer them. I don't want to go too far back with emails and I know there's still a few, maybe 15 or so on that I have not answered over time because I want to make sure they're pertinent to the current environment and situation we're all in versus just talking vaguely about something in the future or in the past. I will try to answer some of these emails that are sort of applicable even now. Um, Hi there, just saw you on the Ritual podcast recently and liked it and inspiring to listen to. I'm writing here because I have a question regarding the interpretation of data from five times one mile repeat tests. You say you can calculate the heart rate zones from using heart rate average of the repeats. I'm wondering specifically how you do it. As far as I'm aware, a person's VT2 can range anywhere from 70 to 90% of heart rate reserve depending on how trained they are. And the only way I've known the heart rate zones is by generic 50 to 60%, 60 to 70%, etc. of heart rate reserve. For example, sake, my heart rate from the test is 78% of my heart rate reserve, 195 max, 45 resting heart rate 
which gives him supposedly a heart rate reserve of 150, which puts me at 162 beats per minute. This is getting technical, but we'll work through it. Would you place VT2 in the middle or bottom of my zone four? Or would you place it in the top of my zone three? <laughs> would the process be the same if my VT2 was same 88% of heart rate reserve? On the podcast, you mentioned separating the zones by five to seven beats per minute to avoid the gray zones, and the zone two is generally 30, 40 beats lower than zone four. Is it a linear process where you count down a set number of beats per minute, or do you use percentages reconciling the test data with gen generic interpretation of heart rate zones 60 to 70%, 70-80%, etc.? Wow. Well, first of all, um, there is no clean answer to this because none of this, I, I, I should go back. First of all, there is no clean answer to this. The reason for this is that you're basing it on this, this data that you mentioned is basing it on direct individual numbers and even HRR of a set number of 150 and then using percentages of that. I've never been a fan of that. These are all ranges and I've talked about that recently on the podcast. None of your training should be set at a specific number. It's ranges. It's bouncing around between different stimuluses, stimuli, excuse me, and so calculating anything based off of a set number or percentages like that, it just is a dangerous game. Secondly, I say it's a dangerous game because what we do with the five by one mile test, it's a field test. It's not science. It's not perfect, but it's very close based off of, you know, 20 years of doing this and seeing tests and seeing lactate tests and VO2 max tests and a variety of different tests cycling tests and running tests. I actually just switched my cycling test after 10 years of doing a different type of field test based off of input from another very respected coach that I like to work with a lot. He's a good friend. But yeah, this isn't an exact science and nor do I want it to be. It's based off of the input of the athlete. It's based off of what we're gonna do when we retest and retest again. And as we retest again and see different values and different paces, we triangulate and continue to narrow down the exact, very close data points that we need. And no, it's an imperfect science for sure. It's not a lab, it's a field test. And that's why the five by one mile repeats are so effective because they're repeatable. They're not as invasive as some of the blood tests and oxygen tests and they can be repeated, they can be re-simulated, and so forth. The other aspect to keep in mind is it's not three by one mile, it's five by one mile. So keep in mind, as you're trying to figure out these numbers, there's a reason we do five, and that's to deplete your aerobic and anaerobic energy reserves. Excuse me, your anaerobic energy reserves. By going at that effort, by the time we get to the third and fourth repeat, we're seeing some really good data because the overstimulation of doing a test is and starting off too strong, hopefully, which I always look for in an athlete test that they started off too strong. Otherwise, they didn't do it right because I want them to go at 95% effort, 10K pace effort, as if it were their life were depending on it. Not, not quite like that, but you know what I mean. That depletes and empties anaerobic energy reserves. And so that by the time we get to the third and fourth and even fifth, fifth might be a fatigue question, 
But the third and fourth repeats really give me a good insight as to the progression of the test, as to their intensity and how hard they took it out, how deep they're willing to dive into this, not knowing what will happen by the third or fourth one. That's exactly where we want to be. And then average heart rate versus final heart rate gives me a sense of how they're responding to the test, that they're not building through the mile, but instead attacking the mile. And after one minute where they are and so forth of recovery, there's a lot of little nuances to it that I sort of look at based off of seeing thousands of these. No, there is no hard science. I don't take a, you know, any type of value and work on that. I don't use HRR. I don't use any of the values that are out there. I use people's input. I use people's um, RPE. I use heart rate over many weeks and time. I use wattages over many weeks and time. And ever so gently, we get a good picture of the athlete. If you were to go by these numbers, many athletes from Olympians to very good marathoners to also beginners would never have an opportunity to do the things they would want to do because the data is telling them already that it's too difficult or they're limited in their talents. I don't believe that. And so that's why I don't like to work with set numbers. And quite honestly, why I also don't spend much time in the literature or with what other coaches are doing because I don't want to be caught in any type of silo of knowledge. I would rather apply things from different areas and different approaches and different industries and different sports and different um, mindsets, and then sort of pull it back into where we are and what we're trying to accomplish. And again, I as a coach am not telling you what to do. We're working together to observe that you're moving forward to a proper outcome. Many times, I wouldn't say many times, but not it's not uncommon that the athlete after a five by one mile test says, this isn't feasible, it's just not working for me. And then we do it again and we validate and compare the numbers. And then we do it in a different type of test, the seven mile steady state test and so forth. We get enough data and then the training data that I see on training peaks all continues to validate that the data of the five by one was quite close, not perfect, but quite close. And so to go into the specifics here, um, heart rate reserve, depending on how trained they are. And yeah, I, I wouldn't even come close to guessing how that all works, nor quite honestly, and not to sound flippant or rude, do I care? Because if this were you, my athlete, we would have gone through that experience of the track and what you observed and how you felt and then we applied in training and then you tell me more about how you felt and observed and so forth and then we'll have a retest not the same effort level but we'll do a check-in where we do five by one mile repeats at a set heart rate and we'll use that as a line in the sand and then we'll do another five by one mile repeats a few weeks later at the same heart rate and notice the pace go down well then what we're doing is working and so then it doesn't matter on the data as much as it is that what you're doing is working and you're getting faster you're getting more efficient same heart rate faster time and so there's many ways to skin this cat 
but I don't like to get too caught up in the exact numbers of it and percentages of it and more look at the data that's given to me, the picture the athlete presents and paints for me, us one-on-one. I have one athlete in front of me. What are they telling me? What is their RPE? What are they showing me? How do they train? How are they absorbing? How hard are they working? How hard can they dig? What's their mindset? All that creates enough input that I can get pretty close. And then from there, we apply it. And if it's not working, we adjust. But we know we're heading down the right path. And that's the main thing, that the athlete gets the outcome and sees the progression and is progressing that towards what they're looking for. And there's a lot of things in that. The athlete needs to see the progression because it keeps them motivated to continue to do more and trust me. I need to see the progression because it validates the numbers and the data and my approach to me so that the athlete sees the success and therefore stays motivated, right? And the outcome is what we said in the future is where we're heading towards. Those are our check-ins along the way of validating that this training is working under the, the circumstances of a race. And from there, we continue to grow and go and build and create a new normal and become fitter, and better, and stronger, and so forth. All right, I have another, a longer one, and this one's from Germany, so they will get some extra attention because, you know, I'm German. Hi, Chris. Uh, Maybe you've already read Training for the Uphill Athlete by Steve House, Scott Johnston, and Killian Jornet. I bought this book shortly after starting to listen to your podcast about four months ago. As I was not much into endurance sports and running, often some basic terms were unclear to me like aerobic pace and tempo runs. I really enjoyed listening to your wisdom, but wanted to wrap my head around the whole background of endurance. The book is now my Bible and helped me really understand the physiology of endurance, the methodological basis of how to plan and train for myself. The book gives a ton of information about all those topics spiced with different athlete stories and example workouts. I enjoyed reading it even more as it goes hand in hand with your philosophy and importance of zone two training, not progressing too fast, listening to your body, and that no athlete is created equal. If you consider it to be helpful, it'd be great to share this book recommendation on the podcast as many people want, maybe want to learn about endurance and have a solid book at hand. Just an idea. Well, I just did. Training for the Uphill Athlete by Steve House, who, by the way, is a great guy, and I really respect him, and I really love what he wrote in there. I did not read the whole book, but I read a lot of it, and we did some research together, Steve House and I, way back, this must be 2002, maybe, at Pikes Peak um, for the military. Oh, gosh, this is a long time ago. I will have to pull up that story some other time, but... We were up there at altitude for a while, sequestered doing um, athletic training. Anyway, uh, that's a story for another time. However, the book left me with one question. At one point when explaining the the different zones, a 10% test is mentioned in the sidebar. I quote, zone three training is most effective when the athlete has a sufficient basic aerobic capacity. How much aerobic capacity is sufficient? When you've raised your AET to be within 10% 
of your LT as measured by heart rate or pace with more than 10% spread between thresholds. An athlete still has aerobic deficiency and needs to build more aerobic base. Those who have been less than 10%, who have less than a 10% spread between thresholds will need to reduce and even drop zone two training, substituting zone three workouts. Okay, let's stop there. Um, the 10% spread, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the 10% spread is also quite common in cycling, uh, especially for pro cyclists. And um, it's when, you, especially when you're going VO2 max testing and um, oxygen consumption and uh, so forth. They use the percentages and the data in there is quite common. And although I just talked about percentages on the previous email, um, this is also a common way with regards to the spread. And I know exactly what they're talking about in this case. So um, they're saying what I've said in other words on past podcasts. That is, if you're continuing to improve at your aerobic pace, why jump to the other aspects of training? Save those for when your aerobic pace is no longer netting you a faster time. So the track check-in test that I just talked about on the previous email, if you are hitting your limit, you're seeing no more improvement at set heart rate, improving your pace, that's when you might need to add some speed work, intensity, and so forth, VO2 max intervals, uh, leg turnover, longer tempo intervals to your training regimen in order to stimulate your graph, your lactate threshold line or your lactate line, excuse me, not threshold line, lactate line to shift. Now, this isn't guaranteed, but it is quite successful with a lot of athletes. And it's very similar to what a lot of athletes do year round. Now, again, I know cyclists very well, but um, I'm pretty sure runners in the elite category do this as well. Cyclists start their preseason in, let's say, October, and all they're doing is riding pretty easy spinning away, flat roads, 90s cadence, small chain ring, just building the aerobic energy system. And they're constantly being monitored and tested. And as they're sort of just getting their fitness back, it's not like they get out of shape, but as they get back to their numbers that they typically see, their individual training will continue at the zone two or their aerobic values until the wattage at those aerobic values is no longer going up. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at that point, they start getting specific in their training towards the event or the events that they're getting ready for, whether that's the tour, whether that's one-day stage races, whether that's time trial, time, time trialing, and so forth. Again, I'm being pretty general here. This is just high-level approach. But similarly here, and what they're saying is... <clears throat> With more than 10% spread between thresholds, an athlete still has aerobic deficiency. Deficiency is a hard word. You might have developed a great aerobic engine, but he's saying that there's more aerobic um, gains to be had and needs to build more aerobic base. So therefore, why approach zone three, zone four, zone five, VO2 max, if you still have clearly have low hanging fruit and success to be found there. 
Now, many of you might be wondering, well, how come so often, Chris, you talk about 80% of the time zone two, 10% of the time zone three, 10% of the time zone four, or 5% zone four, 5% just go as hard as you want. That's just a guidance to keep you interested too. Sure, we want to keep all the zones stimulated, familiar, activated. That, that can be done in one workout right? Effectively from an exercise phys standpoint of touching all the zones in one day or once a week, just to sort of blow out the pipes and keep the body connected to those efforts, high cadence stuff, um, big gear stuff, um, hill repeats, um, you know, all kinds of different strength things are happening there. Again, so many ways to go about this, but truly from a number standpoint, I totally agree with this. That's sort of the 10% test. Okay, so let's move on. Second part of this question. Those just started, or no, it doesn't say second part of this question. It says another way, another point it says, those just starting aerobic training and or those with aerobic deficiency syndrome can almost do all their aerobic-based training in zone two because their pace at this intensity is going to be slow enough that their muscles will not get too much of a beating. However, those athletes with a high AET um, and whose pace at this threshold is fast will not be able to do much zone two, zone two training in a week without overtraining, without risking overtraining. They will need to do much more aerobic base work in zone one and even recovery zone. Correct. Um, again, that's saying if you've already used your entire current potential of aerobic base training, as in you've developed a high aerobic threshold, aerobic platform, AET. You training at those values or just below those values is still going to overtrain you. It's hard work, you're fatigued, um, and so forth. And so you will have to spend less time overall time training, more time recovery zone, and focus on high level, high intensity intervals interspersed in between there. And that ties into the previous question. Those who have less than 10% spread between thresholds will need to reduce or even drop Z2 training, substituting Z3 through Z workouts. Because the spread is smaller, that means either AET is higher, but keep in mind, it also could be because AT, otherwise known as LT, lactate threshold, is lower. So again, we're getting into the weeds here. I just want to make sure that the po point here is what I said first. Don't move on to zone three, zone four, zone five training until you have to, you have maximized, optimized your uh, your gains at zone two. That's basically what Steve is saying in his book. I'm not determining your um, LT with the test. I'm determining your zone four. Where your zone four and LT interconnect is not part of that. I do not claim to know where your LT is with the five by one mile running test. It just helps me quantify zone four. LT could be at the top of your zone four, could be at the bottom of your zone four. And like I said in the previous email, these are general numbers that'll give us a good insight for you to train for the next six to 12 weeks and get a good idea of more data that we then can use to really narrow that down. So those are my general thoughts on this rule, but that's basically what you want to pull out of it. And that's why the retest for so many of you doing this on your own is so important. Setting a set heart rate, 
which I put at the bottom of zone four at the top of zone three. So challenging enough that it feels fun and good and decent to run there, but not hard enough that you are going to, that you're going to run out of energy or run out of effort or run out of willpower or run out of muscular power, right? We want to do it. So it just feels good. Five times one mile with one mile, one minute rest. And that if your training is working correctly at zone two, every two, three weeks, you do that run or max every four weeks, but you can do it more frequently. It doesn't tax you that much. It's a good training day either way. And your pace should be improving. And if it isn't, then you need to look at changing up the training. And because we have enough um, data with doing, let's say, six of these a year, you get a good insight of what worked, what didn't work, how tired you are, how you might be nutritionally deficient, and so forth. I hope that helps. All right, looky here. We're getting up there in the time. And I want to make sure we keep it short but have some good content this week. So I'm hoping to do just this last email. Hi, Chris. I'm 27 years old, and I finally did my heart rate test, and now need help with my zones. I did four times two kilometers. I hope that's okay. By the way, this is Lazar from Serbia. I love getting international stuff. I did not do more, and he gave me the data. I'll go into that in a moment. I had extremely tight schedule. Anyway, my goal is to try to run a half marathon in 120. Great. Based on this, can you give me some tips on maybe what to focus on the most? What types of run workouts should be crucial? Right now I'm at a point where 15 kilometer runs are okay, but everything more than that is more than that is doable, but not comfortable. Also around 70 to 18 kilometers, the pace struggle is becoming more and more difficult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thank you once more. Sorry for my English. Hope you can understand everything good enough. All right, let's dive into this individually. Four by two kilometers, not quite five by one, but let's see if we can get some data. Um, so heart rate is pretty consistent. As I've talked about, the first uh, at the end of two kilometers was 187, then 194, then 196, and then 196. <laughs> you can see he's young. That heart rate goes nice and high. So again, um, heart rate is high to start. It's pretty close to where he ended up max 196 on the third and fourth repeat. So he really dove into the effort. Then I look at the pace, um, 345, 350, 341, 350, 353, 355. This is per kilometer. Um, and then 355, 355. So started off aggressive on the first kilometer. And by the eighth kilometer, he only dropped off a total of 10 seconds per kilometer. Um, but he stayed pretty consistent in there, and he really dove into it on third kilometer and the fourth kilometer. So again, showing that he's really trying hard and the effort is working out well. Why do I say working out well? Well, because he dove into it and he's hanging on to it. And the heart rate is generally rising so we see that after two kilometers, his heart rate is about 194 to 196. That first one, you know, it takes a while for the body to recognize what it's doing. So we don't really want to look at that one too much. And that's the depletion that I talked about. So 194 to 196. So let's take 195. Well, if his heart rate after two kilometers is 195 and he was getting tired and, and it was getting more difficult, 
we can probably say that, you know, 190 is probably, he was going into zone five just because it's a two kilometer effort. That's more than a mile. And um, yeah, I just, I just think he, by continuing to push your effort, you could dig, dig in into zone five, the length of time and effort. So I would probably say the top of his zone four is 190. Now you might say, well, gosh, this sounds pretty vague. Well, but that's the thing is I've seen enough of these, but also that extension of those last five beats in zone five is exactly the ones I would want to stay away from, right? We don't want to be there too often. That's that rare time during the week that we get there in our training, if at all, for a half marathon, if at all for him. But for him, the first one ended, the high was 187. He's still fresh. So therefore, we're safe in the 180 to 190 zone. He can recover quickly from that 187 and did another one faster, his third and fourth kilometer. Remember, eight kilometers total, four times two kilometers, was faster than the first two. So meaning he recovered from that effort well, didn't have too much of a heart rate, fatigue, shock, blow up and was even faster and that went to 194 heart rate so if he does 180s for zone four that means he should be recovering it's not that taxing it's probably about 90 percent effort here we go with the percentages again <laughs> so what feels like 90 percent effort so i would have him observe what 180 and 190 zone four will be like for the next few weeks again keeping some space between the zones. Um, and I'd rather be more conservative than too tight. So therefore I would put zone three at 165 to 175. Um, now, could he be going too easy because I've created that space and for zone three? Yes, he could be going a bit too easy for zone three at 165 to let's say 170. If we had tight zones, it would be 170 to 180. But as I was saying before, we're not going to do much damage at going too easy ever. And so if he is, and, and most athletes tend to focus on the middle of the zone. So therefore, and they're usually pushing the zone because they want to, you know, they catch themselves. Oops, I'm going a bit too fast. So therefore, if he's doing his zone three work at 170, that's pretty good. That means it'll be challenging, stimulating, have the benefit and the effect that we're looking for and throw in another five gap for zone two. So now his zone two is 140 to 150, uh, excuse me, 150 to 160 heart rate, which you would say that's still pretty high, right? But again, we want to err on the side of too easy and 150 to 160 is going to feel quite controlled, comfortable, steady for him. Now from this data, do I know what he needs to work on? No. <laughs> um, if he wants to run a half marathon at 120 based off of this can you give me some tips maybe on what to focus on the most well the first part I would focus on is your ability to run remember you're looking to run 21 kilometers so I would say your ability to run 10k smoothly and at your goal pace is your first goal I don't know if you're even able to do that yet so I would focus on that and how do you get there you know there's a zillion 10k plans out there. But again, also see how your aerobic conditioning is working on your track check-in. In this case, your track check-in 
is what we said low zone four upper zone three so we said uh, 180 to 190 so 175 to 180 is this track check-in number um, right now I'm at a, at a point where 15 kilometer runs are okay but everything more than that is doable but not comfortable yeah no yeah and around 17 to 18 kilometers pace struggle is becoming more and more difficult well first of all you're getting ready for 21 kilometers so you shouldn't be doing more than 18 in the first place and so and once you're comfortable and effective at goal pace or a little bit faster than goal pace for 10k at least then you can start working on the second half and you might have to start getting efficient at um, running a little bit slower i would say 20 seconds per kilometer slower than goal pace for 15 to 18 kilometers it has to be just steady there and not looking at the top clock all the time just on feel do i am i able to get out the door and run a controlled comfortable 15 kilometers at you know 20 seconds 15 seconds per kilometer slower than goal pace now you've done it in a relaxed aerob upper aerobic capacity setting not race not rested and so forth so now you can start thinking because you've done 10k at a little bit faster than uh, goal pace now you can start thinking okay how much can i extend it goal pace for it shouldn't be sustainable in training for more than 12 or 13 kilometers otherwise your goal pace is too slow right so work around that and then understanding you need some speed work for leg turnover you need aerobic conditioning for endurance and from there i mean depending on the course with regards to strength um, and downhills and so forth but yes your ability to do those components will be key so i hope that helps all right, everybody, I think that'll be it for the week. We kept it at under an hour, which I'm pretty impressed of, um, based off of how long I usually make these podcasts of just me talking. Stay safe out there. Continue to be healthy. Continue to think about how you're being an athlete. Continue to think about how you're recovering and how you're sleeping and how you're contributing to your athlete self to be better tomorrow than you are today. Progression, the athlete's mindset. What am I doing besides just training in order to have the best possible outcome in my next session, as well as in a future outcome? How do I want to kick out of this? There's so much we could be doing, and we're so busy with all of this. The list should be long on what we need to do, and that should help the motivation right there. The discipline to repeat daily actions and habits and create routines so that you don't even have to think about motivation. You just go and execute. You gotta do the work. I have a variety of podcasts coming where I did some consults, so you'll get some different insights and different conversations going on there. And then as many of you know, I had the uh, ritual podcast this week, so you'll hear my voice a fair amount over the next few days. So until then, until we talk next on this podcast, stay healthy, stay fit, stay positive.